have please have a seat. So last week we kicked off with having a look about, uh, if anyone ever asks you to write in the back of an envelope, what's the Bible all about? And we, we uh, had six symbols that hopefully will come up on the screen. If you ever have to scribble in the back of an envelope and say, this is the story of the whole Bible in six symbols. There's creation, uh, God just bringing creation into being. And the first two chapters of Genesis are all about that. There are two complementary accounts. Uh, Genesis 1, as we know, is the pattern of the days, and uh, it's all written um, in theologically oriented history using symbols, and uh, the, the writer doesn't want us to think necessarily scientifically, although it's a very uh, wonderful description of what would come scientifically in that order, um, but actually what the writer of Genesis wants to tell us is that God goes about his business by forming and filling, forming and filling. In other words, he, he creates the cardboard box and then he fills the cardboard box. And so basically, day one, it corresponds with day four, two to five, three to six, and basically it's, it's a wonderful piece of poetry which is basically saying in a very short number of words written by Moses, the primary author of the first five books of the Bible, uh, it has been added to by others, but uh, we believe, but he's the primary author. And so he writes this about creation. Then Genesis 2 is a complementary uh, story of creation, which should help us to understand that these are uh, succinct, poetic, symbol-filled bits of history to help us to understand massive things in only a few short pages. So that's creation, and then there's the fall. Genesis chapter 3, and we read about Adam and Eve deciding that they will go their own way, and uh, human beings deciding uh, that they will decide what's right and what's wrong. And then there's the era of promise, the majority of the Old Testament. Then there's the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the birth of the church, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the mission that we are now on. So we are stage five people, and over the next few weeks we'll be reading about stage three. And then at the end of time, there is a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. Everything is made completely well. So when we start reading Scripture on Wednesday, uh, reading our 20 minutes a day as part of the Immerse series of the New Living Translation, the, the first thing we'll come upon is the first uh, two chapters of Genesis, the creation, and then we'll come to the fall. So creation paints this picture of everything be being beautifully harmonious, perfect relationship between God and human beings, between human beings and one another, the man and the woman, and also between human beings and creation. Everything is in perfect harmony. Genesis 3, the big X, the fall, everything goes belly up. Everything goes pear-shaped. And in that moment, all the harmony all the relationships completely break down. They're not even just a diminishing of them, but they completely break down. So I have to warn you before we venture into reading Genesis chapter 3 to 11 over the course of the latter part of this week, is that it is bleak. Because the, the author of the, of the Pentateuch wants us to know the fact that life without God is utterly bleak. And so very quickly we read, in the first family, Cain killed his brother Abel. 
And then we read about a flood where, where God comes this close to saying, it's not worth it. Human beings, creation, it's not worth it. Then human beings build a tower of Babel, and God decides to scatter them in the midst of their pride, and he scatters the nations. And the project of building the city of Babel is thwarted. Because human beings will never be able to reach heaven by their own means. We will never be able to build a stairway to heaven. There's only a ladder that's going to come down, as it tells us in John chapter 1. And on that ladder, which is Jesus Christ, the angels of God will ascend and descend. In other words, heaven and earth will be reconnected. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we read of just the mess that ensues from human beings deciding to go their own way. And we read about a talking snake, which would make us think, uh, what do these symbols mean? We're not told who the talking snake is, but it tells us in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the snake, the ancient snake, is Satan, the devil, who leads the world astray. And so what happens is that in Genesis chapter 2, interestingly, God has a conversation with the man by himself. And he gives the man primary responsibility for making sure that God's will is done on earth. The woman is called into that calling, and together they become co-rulers on earth together, equally called, equally valued by God. But interesting, we come to Genesis chapter 3, and Satan, the serpent, speaks his first lie and says to the man, the woman, because the man is present, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees and the fruit of the garden? There's a lie in the question because Satan is a deceiver. He wants always to paint God as a spoiled sport. And so he says, did God really say you can't eat anything in the garden? And interestingly, it's only the woman who speaks. And she says, no, no, we're allowed to eat of the fruit and the trees in the garden, but there is one tree that we're not allowed to eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the conversation rolls on. If you've ever been tempted to do anything, you'll know the devil's schemes. He starts off with lies, and then he just continues on from there. The interesting thing is that the man remains silent. The Bible tells us that Satan is part of the created order. He was created by God. He fell from grace. And so we're told that men and women have authority over all of created order. And so that means that men and women in their perfect state have authority over Satan. So both Adam and Eve have authority to put Satan back in his box and say, keep quiet. We're not listening to you. And the man is actually the one who God has had the stern conversation with in Genesis chapter 2 and said, basically, this is on you. But interestingly, the man remains silent. Often we say, isn't it terrible that Eve ate the apple? 
But what the, the writer of Genesis wants us to understand very subtly is there are two sins here. There's one of inaction and one of action. And Adam commits the sin of inaction. Because as the saying goes, all it takes for evil to flourish is that good men should do nothing. And out of that then, there comes a ruining of the relationship between men and women. The battle of the sexes begins. And Scripture says to us, says, first of all, God judges Satan, and then he says to the woman, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So the woman will no longer willingly follow her husband's lead, and he will no longer exercise it in the loving, self-sacrificial way that is God's design. I know in modern society that is a controversial thing to say. And we live in an era of a lot of gender violence. But I want to put it to you that, as we said last week, we either have a decision to trust the way of the world or to trust Scripture. And what I would say to you is this, is the way of the world working? I do not believe that it is. The way of Scripture is this. God calls men to lay down their lives like Christ for those who are around them. And within the covenant of marriage, God's calling on men is to lay down their life as Christ laid down his life for the church. And in that context, Genesis chapter 2 and the New Testament also says, in that context, we should submit to leadership, which is for our benefit. Because here's the thing. There's one billion people in the world today who willingly submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. None of us have to. So why do we do it? We do it because Christ was willing to lay down his life for us. Why wouldn't we lay down our life why wouldn't we obey someone who is willing to lay down his life for us? Human beings and creation, that relationship also becomes corrupted. And the Lord says to the man, the ground is cursed because of you. As we talked last week, as we read Genesis, we're wondering, how come God issues all these curses? And the answer is because He loves us. A curse is a shorthanded way of saying judgment. So why does God allow judgment to happen? Why does God allow suffering in this world? And the amazing answer that comes to the first couple of chapters in Genesis is this. It's more complicated than this, but here's, here's the basic answer that I believe Scripture gives. God allows suffering because He loves us. Because there is much more to what God is calling us into than just this world, be it 70 years or less or more. 
And God doesn't want us to get too comfortable in this world and miss out on what comes next. And so as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he has allowed creation to be subjected to frustration. He has baked judgment into creation since Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants us to realize that there must be more to life than this. But the most tragic thing of all is the breakdown in the relationship between God and human beings. First of all, there's rebellion by human beings, and then there's judgment. And with that judgment comes death, for you were dust, and to dust you will return. God is the source of all life, and so whenever we turned our backs on God and He turned our backs on us in judgment, we were cut off from the source of life, and a death penalty was put above our heads. And the shocking, stark reality of the Old Testament, and particularly these chapters in Genesis, is this. Without God, we are lost. It's not that life is just somehow diminished or the edge is taken off it or there's just some frustrations. What the Old Testament in these first few chapters is telling us is this, without God, we are without hope. Without God, death enters the equation. As Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequences of rebellion is death. And the first thing that happens is spiritual death, where we're just cut off from communication with God. And the what rolls out of that is physical death. And so what we see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that every successive generation, the life expectancy gets lower and lower and lower and lower. And what's the writer of Genesis telling us? Death is entering the equation. But amazingly, Genesis chapter 12, a new thing happens. God comes to a man, a wandering Aramean called Abram, and he makes a covenant with him. Now, for us to understand what we're reading in the New Old Testament over these weeks ahead, we, it's important for us to understand what a covenant is and what a blood covenant is because the whole of the Bible is based on blood covenants. Now, anyone watching online who, uh, you know, clicks on over the weeks ahead and watches this service from one part of the world, they might go, why are those three big guys going into that pool together in that pool of water? And they may well wonder what's going on. But for us, we understand what that means. But for us, as we read the Old Testament, we may not understand what the language and patterns are of what we're reading. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 17, God says to Abram, take five animals, a heifer, a ram, a goat, and two birds, cut Three, the big, bigger three animals in half, and put the two birds there as well. Now, if someone came across Abram doing this in the, in the ancient Near East, they would have known exactly what he was doing. No question. They would have understood that this was a contract, a covenant. 
If we see on TV two people sitting down with solicitors and signing two bits of paper, we know what they're doing. They're both signing contracts. They're both saying, we are going to promise to do something, and there will be consequences if we don't do it. That's a contract. A covenant between two people or two parties is, is a much more weighty business. So what would happen is in the ancient Near East, the animals would be sacrificed, divided in two, and then the two parties would walk between the severed animals, and they would effectively say, if I don't live up to my side of the bargain, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. That's a blood covenant. And it was always done in the presence of God. And basically what was being said was, in the presence of God, if I don't do what I'm promising to do, may this happen to me. May I be put to death. And so amazingly, in the midst of this situation where human beings are completely cut off from God, God in his mercy and generosity comes to a man called Abraham and he says to him, I am going to make a blood covenant with you. Find the animals, cut the animals, divide the animals, and that's where our phrase, to cut a deal, comes from. To cut a deal is to cut a covenant. It's to cut the animals and to walk through them. And so Abram knew exactly what was happening. But here's the interesting thing. God caused Abraham to enter into a deep sleep. And so only one person walked through the divided animals in Genesis chapter 17. It was God himself. In other words, God has said, I'm going to make a covenant between myself and human beings. There were lots of covenants. There were a slide on these. Actually, there's a covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham. Uh, if we could have the slide, please, it would be great. Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, and then also the new covenant. May or may not come up. Great, there it is. And uh, there's signs of each of those covenants. Noah. It was a rainbow, circumcision for the second covenant, Sabbath keeping was the third, and baptism we have just witnessed, the sign of the new covenant. And in each of those cases, apart from Noah, God called people to respond in some way. But even in the covenant with Abraham, there was a hint that God knew that we were never going to live up to the covenants. And so he walked through the divided animals by himself. God, Abraham was not a necessarily good man, as Mark has already mentioned. He was a man who trusted that God was good. And the new covenant, the covenant of grace, is the covenant of us believing and acknowledging that we are not good. God alone is good. And he's called us into this relationship with him. And Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills every part of the blood covenant. He represents God in the covenant. He represents us in the covenant. He is the sacrifice in the covenant. He spilled his own blood in the covenant. He is the symbol of the covenant. In other words, all throughout Scripture, God has bound himself or sought to bind himself to us 
by way of a blood covenant. All of them failed because we let God down. And so the New Testament, the new covenant, is the covenant of grace. The other ones are covenants of works. They all rely on human responsibility being made true. And so we are received by God, not on any of our own merits, but purely on the merits of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect human being who gave himself for us. So we don't have to be good to have a relationship with God. We just have to believe that God is good. So never hold yourself back from becoming a follower of Jesus Christ because of your past or even because of your present because none of it depends on your track record or my track record. It depends solely on the track record of Jesus Christ. He has done everything to bind us to God. And so what's been happening this morning in this sign, the symbol of the covenant of Jesus Christ being trustworthy is the fact that we believe that in the moment of baptism, through faith in Christ, by the generosity of God, Christ has bound himself to James, and James has bound himself to Christ. And where, as our grip isn't that strong, the grip of Christ cannot be broken. And serving Christ also doesn't depend on how good we are. Christ has made us righteous in the eyes of God. And so we become filled with the Holy Spirit. We are given a new start. We're given a a knowledge of God and a closeness with God so that whenever we pray for healing, whenever we seek justice, God steps into the equation and miraculous things happen. That's what we've heard this morning. So this morning I want to encourage you, if you've never taken that step to become a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. If you doubt this morning in any way that you're good enough to follow in Christ's steps, know the fact He's done it all. If you're a Christian and you wonder, how can I grow in confidence and faith? Ask for more of the Holy Spirit today. And have confidence, as James did a number of weeks ago, when you come across sickness or injury, pray for healing and trust that God can do it all. Shall we stand together? There's opportunity for prayer ministry after the service if you want to commit your life to Christ, if you want to pray. Be